Ladies and gentlemen, it is Tuesday, August 7th, and you are listening to The Cheats Movement on WRIR. I am your host, Cheats, and on this special edition of The Cheats Movement, we will be talking to the managing partner of RVA Mag, my good friend Landon Schroeder. We are approaching the one-year anniversary of the horrific events that happened in Charlottesville behind the Unite the Right rally. Landon and RVA Mag were on Ground Zero a year ago in Charlottesville during the entire rally doing excellent, excellent journalism in what can only be called a horrific, horrific scene. I am talking to Landon one-on-one as we approach the one-year anniversary on Sunday. We'll get an update on what's happening in Charlottesville and basically how the entire country has reacted to this horrible, horrible event last year at this time. We will also be talking to Francis Burris of the Richmond Jazz Festival. This Thursday in Richmond kicks off the ninth annual Richmond Jazz Festival. They've got a theme this year of legends. It is jam-packed from top to bottom. It starts Thursday and runs throughout the weekend. Saturday and Sunday at Maymont Park are the big, big days of the weekend. But we will be talking to Francis about the Richmond Jazz Festival. And finally, our feature interview is a throwback. We are re-airing the interview that I did in the home of Abigail Spamberger. Abigail is running in the 7th Congressional District. She is a Democrat. She is running against the Republican incumbent Dave Bratt. It is a race that has taken the nation by storm. It is basically considered a toss-up race in what has heavily been a Republican-leaning district, but the national climate makes this race very compelling and abigail is a very compelling candidate so this interview is a one-on-one interview with abigail spamberger and you'll hear all of that coming up on the cheats movement on wrir but up first as always dipset on the line. I'm so excited to have them. This is not a sponsored uh, phone hotline like they do on the big networks, but maybe one day we can get a sponsorship. Maybe we'll call it the RVA Mag hotline because joining me on the phone, my good friend, managing partner of RVA Mag, Landon Schroeder. Landon, how you feeling? Mark, thank you for having me. Feeling very good. It's the first time of many because this is a brand new show. So the Cheats Movement on WRIR is in its infancy, and I couldn't go too many more shows without having you on and having the good folks at RVA Mag represent it. And there's a lot to talk about. I want to jump right in with you because we don't have very much time, but I want to jump right in with you. This week, a couple days ago, there was some vandalism. You, you've got a piece right now uh, written by you on RVA Mag about red paint covering the Robert E. Lee statue. Just tell us, what do we know about it? Well, I think as it stands, there's not much to know. I mean, this is the third act of vandalism against one of the Confederate statues since, I believe, November 2017, last year. Um, so it only seems to be increasing in frequency, and I think that's tied to a few things. It's tied to the current political climate and how people are projecting their feelings about what's happening onto the monuments, as we both know, and this will lead into the next conversation about Unite the Right. You know, the monuments, while being testaments to white supremacy and enshrined 
to white supremacy from time immemorial. Nowadays, they've kind of taken on a a deeper significance with the alt-right, white supremacists and white nationalists really making Confederate monuments one of the mainstays of their of their ideology. So I, I think the way people are connecting to that, specifically young activists and people that care about fighting white supremacy, checking white nationalism, have engaged in an act of civil disobedience, one of which was to Robert E. Lee Red. I mean, Robert E. Lee is the flagship monument on Monument Avenue. Right. And I don't think it's random that he was chosen as opposed to some of the other monuments. And I think second to that, Mark, it's also the fact that the Monument Avenue Commission in Richmond that was organized by, by Mayor Stoney almost one year ago to deal with the fallout of Charlottesville really didn't come up with a kind of longstanding and lasting solution. From my perspective, it seems like they punted a bit. You know, obviously taking down Jefferson Davis, making the recommendation to take down Jefferson Davis, I believe is a good start, but it's also the obvious start because he's the only non-Virginian that's really on Monument Avenue. But why stop there? Why wouldn't they make the recommendation to remove these statues at this time? So I think when these things collide, it creates an environment that's conducive to something like an act of vandalism or an act of civil disobedience. So you bring up a good point, and it's really interesting for someone like myself who's lived in Richmond all our, all, our, all my life. It was when Arthur Ashe came on the on Monument Avenue, the idea was, oh, that's the statue that's going to be vandalized. Fast forward uh, a good 20 or so years later, and you mentioned... I think this is the third vandal, the third Confederate monument that's been vandalized. What do you see moving forward? Do you see more types of actions like this? And do you see it kind of spreading beyond Robert E. Lee? Well, I mean, in, in as many months, it was two acts of vandalism against Jefferson Davis and now an act of vandalism against Robert E. Lee. I do not see the frequency of those acts of civil disobedience or those acts of vandalism abating anytime soon. I mean, we live in a current political climate that is deeply contentious, as contentious as it's ever been in almost the last 50 years. And these symbols and and what we've come to understand about these symbols and what we know about their place in public history, uh, the memory and ideology that they steward by their placement on Monument Avenue, um, how they're enshrined to white supremacy. I don't believe <clears throat> that our understanding of these things and how they are once again connecting to the current political climate is going to create an environment where they are not going to be targeted. I think they are going to be targeted now. I think they will be targeted into the future. And I think it'll ebb and flow based on the social conversation that people are not just having with themselves in Richmond, but are having in Virginia and nationally. Two quick questions to finish up on this, and then we'll uh, switch gears just a little bit. One, I did see a piece that was surprising regards to how fast, if you will, the police, the the city officials and the police are actually cleaning up the vandalism on the monuments much faster than, I guess, blight areas of Richmond. Is there any truth to that? Is there any reason why we think that is? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I was out there you know, right when the, the incident broke. Um, you know, the statue of Robert E. Lee is 
you know, only a few blocks from my house in Richmond. So I did talk to the Capitol Police. Um, the Capitol Police, obviously, I think, got out there around 630. And by the time I got out there around nine o'clock, there was already a, a crew tasked by the Department of General Maintenance, I believe, to, to take down the red tape. The way it was explained to me by the Capitol Police, the public information officer uh, at the Capitol Police, is they have to get out there early before the paint settles. The longer the paint dries, the harder it is to get off. And I do now think I do think that's a that good thing, you, right? I mean, I think it's. I mean, not. I, I think it's a good thing that <laughs> of city officials are on the job. It is kind of compare that and contrast that to other problem areas in the city. Uh, it does seem a little quicker, right? Well, I think obviously because of the the monetary value of houses on Monument <laughs> Avenue, I suspect has something to do with it. And then I think secondly, you know, leaving up, you know, having a, a days old reminder of a contentious act of public disobedience or vandalism in this political climate has the ability to escalate people's feelings. And I do think, you know, part of it was strategy. You know, we need to get this stuff, you know, removed so it doesn't inflame people as the days go on. And then I think tactically the Monument Avenue families, you know, are pretty much going to put put the pressure on the city to get it sorted the minute that it happens. So, you know, I, I think it's kind of both of those things. And I, you know, the city's really, the city's in a tough place. And, you know, I know we can talk about Mayor Stoney in a bit. I think he's in a very unenviable position, you know, trying to to mitigate people's feelings right now, once again, in this political climate and trying to, to walk a, a political tightrope. And I know oftentimes it's easy for us to say, well, he should just do this or he should just do that. But we do have to remember, you know, that politics is a, a dance, you know, is a compromise. And, you know, the best politics, you know, sometimes have to be compromised politics. And I, I do, on some level, you know, sympathize with his position right now as this debate kind of rages around us. Uh, that's a good point. I understand it. Let's move on. Let's move on to Unite the Right one year after. And, and I know this is, and, and let's just be, let's throw it out there because I know this is a sensitive topic for you. You were on the ground in Charlottesville for RVA Mag, kind of at the epicenter of all of this nastiness that was taking place. We are one year later. Let me ask in this way: Do you? Th what are the lessons? What What have we learned a year later as we go into the weekend, and it's one year later? Have we learned anything that we can really take away and say this is a lesson we've learned from? Yeah, and I think all of those lessons are primarily negative. Um, I think in America, civility starts at the top. It always starts at the top, right? So in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville, when you have a, a president from the podium say, well, there were some good people on both sides, in effect, that legitimizes the white nationalists, white supremacists, and alt-right people that showed up in Charlottesville. It was a tacit nod to, to their achievement in mainstreaming their version of white nationalism and white supremacy. So if at the very top, you don't have the civility to to maintain a conversation which, you know, prevents the growth of that conversation, then you have, uh, you know, an opposite effect where the only thing that happens is it finds space to mainstream. 
you know, and that's, that's very dangerous. And I do know that, you know, people have said, well, you know, the alt-right and white nationalists and white supremacists, the retreat, the movement and leadership is fractured, it's splintered. And that might be the case on a surface level, <clears throat> but the way people's feelings configure over the some breadth of what we know to be white supremacy, uh, conversations about black folks, conversations about immigrants, conversations, anti-Semitic conversations about Jewish people, um, you know, conversations about MS-13. When we connect all of these verticals together into an overarching messaging strategy, you've got multiple angles in which that white supremacist conversation can be mainstreamed. It doesn't just have to be guys on the street in Charlottesville and their version of all right white nationalism and white supremacy at that exact moment. They've got multiple avenues to express their versions of white supremacy and white nationalism. And that's what's really scary. So I think the big takeaway is no, you know, these groups are not retreating. These groups are advancing. And also you know, and, and within, being legitimate, uh, being made legitimate by the person in the Oval Office. And being legitimized from the podium. And that's the most scary thing. So, you know, both both you and I, you know, are, are very involved politically and we're very involved, you know, with candidates. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me is just off tone right now is this idea of moderation, because how do you fight extremism with moderation? And as you know, Chief, you know, I've spent, you know, most of my adult life overseas and in various, you know, various areas of conflict. And once you unleash political violence, it's very hard to bottle it back up. That being said, I don't uh, I don't see a scenario in which we fight this growing extremism that is mainstreaming the all right white nationalist and white supremacist conversation with centrist, moderate political language. I don't think those two things are what's going to be needed to, to balance each you know, to balance each other out. That, that's so, a good point. The question I'd have for you is how do we strike that balance in a community? Like let's take Charlottesville. Cause Charlottesville is a interesting community for something like this, a rally that took place like this, that has galvanized the nation. Charlottesville is not the definition of kind of active fight back. It's much more and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the read I've been feeling leading up into this weekend is that Charlottesville kind of just doesn't know what to do. The community, there's peace rallies, there's, uh, you know, alt alternative activities. There's not a lot of, okay, let's address this in a manner that is aggressive. A lot of those political leaders that were of that elk seem to have already been either casted out or not being listened to. I mean, yeah, and, and I won't pretend to be an expert on Charlottesville. Sure. So, you know, I've, I've only kind of assessed the situation from a you know 500,000 foot view. Sure. But I do, I do think there are two things that stood out to me. The first one is that the parks are no longer named Emancipation and Justice Park anymore. I thought that was a very, a very strange move after Unite the Right to change names a third time, um, you know, from being Lee and Jackson Park. And then I think the second thing is the fact that from a city level, it doesn't appear that the city is pulling everybody together in a weekend of remembrance, a uh, weekend of reconciliation. So I have seen various events sponsored online, but they seem like they're being organized by individuals or student associations 
or, you know, even faith-based organizations, you know, I think when the city doesn't directly take ownership of, you know, the, the public history and the memory and stewarding those things as they happened based on a deeply traumatic event, you know, such as a hate crime that James Field Jr. committed, you know, when he ran his car into the counter protesters and killed Heather Heyer, when the city doesn't take ownership of that memory and curate a, a conversation that focuses on reconciliation and addresses the problem at its root, then you're always going to leave yourself open, you know, for a counter conversation and a counter narrative to take hold. And I do think that is very dangerous. Um, and I know we did talk about earlier, you know, it seems like, you know, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of the kind of forward, forward antagonism for this weekend is going to take place in Washington, D.C., because apparently that's where Jason Kessler, who planned Unite the Right, is going to be. So, you know, maybe Charlottesville by hook or crook dodged the bullet, proverbial bullet. But I do think when the city doesn't actively take ownership, you know, of, of the anniversary of something like Unite the Right, you know, then you have a problem. And I mean, it's a very Virginia thing. It's very genteel to kind of sweep it under the carpet and pretend it didn't exist. But I don't think that's the right way to, to handle these incidences in this political climate. And in, in that applies to Charlottesville. And I know we were talking about Charlottesville and what's going to take place this weekend. But and I hate to jump all over the place, but back to what we were saying previously, that also could apply to the city of Richmond. I think that is the basis of our frustration around Monument Avenue. Correct me if right. I'm wrong. There's there's not an aggressive action. Basically, the results of the Monument Avenue Commission were, I would say, passive at best in regards to the removal of Confederate monuments. And I don't think that's where the city needs to be in regards to. I mean, I just think you articulated a frustration in Charlottesville, but you also articulated, I think, the chief frustration when we look at Monument Avenue here in Richmond. I mean, I yeah, you're you're not wrong. And I, I think that frustration, you know, is held by all progressive people, you know, in Richmond. And once again, it feels like you're it feels like forward progress is once again being hijacked, you know, by like the baby boomer generation, you know, this generation sure. of, well, just get over it those statues look real pretty without really understanding their significance to Richmond's time and place American history, but also to the direction Richmond needs to move if it is ever going to be a truly progressive city, which it's not, you know, and there's this myth that Richmond is this progressive place, this progressive city, because we have cool breweries and cool restaurants and a, a barcade opened up, you know, but I think all of those are kind of a smokescreen, you know, it's a bait and switch for the larger question of what does Richmond really want to be? Does it want to be a monument, a testament, you know, to to the, the rebellion, which was, you know, the rebellion which was waged against the United States government for the purposes of owning human beings? Or does it want to acknowledge, you know, the depravity of that history, take the appropriate steps for reconciliation? and move these monuments to where they need to go, well, you know, which is a museum, you know, or uh, Hollywood Cemetery or a hundred different places that they could be put. Um, but the thing is, like, Richmond will never be able to truly reconcile as a community, you know, and it will never truly be able to be a place that can, you know, gain international recognition or, you know, gain the kind of business profile that it wants because no big company, 
no people want to live at the heart of a, a city that worships the Confederacy. Well, here's here's the thing. I think I think the challenge I have with some of it, just to push back a little bit on the uh, kind of what direction we can be in the sense of I really want us, and I think the the actual vision, which is very tough to actualize, right, is not the either or, but the and, right? So I don't necessarily say it as... That's interesting. Right. So no, no, I'm saying it in the way that I don't think some of the things that are happening basically on... <laughs> one side of Martin Luther King Bridge, right? If you're going to use that right. as the line of de- uh, the no, dividing line. Um, yeah. But I don't think that the new restaurants and the new breweries and all that is a smokescreen. I just think it's a way that we can figure... We, that we want to be some of that, and we also mm-hmm. want to be able to address... You know, we want to keep the identity of local neighborhoods. We want the, the historical local neighborhoods like Jackson Ward and Church Hill and in those places we want to be able to move forward in a way where we can celebrate all the awards that the river wins and all the brewery awards and all the restaurant awards but we don't want that community the original community or not original but the kind of historic communities of Richmond to be left behind we want them to be included in the whole narrative of I don't think it's when we always talk about the RV versus Richmond divide, I don't uh, think such a great, such a great metaphor. It's yeah. right. It's such a great uh, way of explaining Paul it. Williams. Oh, yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. It's such a good one. But yeah. I don't think it's Richmond saying, you know, we hate RVA. What I'm thinking it's saying is how can we figure out ways where this RVA thing can include success in the Richmond areas and True. let's, and let's not figure out, you know, cheesy ways to rename it and rebrand it and all that. Let's actually grow this city in a way that's together. And I just don't know. The, the question is, how does any city get there? And that, cause that's a gr- big challenge. Like, I mean, you look at right. DC or New York or San Francisco, you know, Oakland, you look at these places and, and that's the tough part about figuring out how you move forward together without it being an adversarial thing. And I, I just don't know how it happens, but I don't think there's resentment. I don't think there's a lot of, Oh, this, right. Go ahead. No, but we've also seen other cities in the South that one would assume are a lot more regressive than progressive, you know, remove their statues in the middle of the night, just being like, we just don't need them. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, like Texas, Louisiana, you know. Oh, don't give me. I'm all. You know, I'm all sold on the. Like, I'm all sold on moving the monuments. I know even, that. Even I am. They were just, you know, they right. had brave, brave civic leaders that were like, you know what, we're just going to do this and get it done. Right. And what happened in those places? Well, you know, Tennessee didn't break out in spontaneous insurgency. <laughs> you know, Louisiana, Louisiana is still standing. Tennessee, you know, Texas is still there. Still there. So you know, ultimately, you know, the projection. That the noise, you know, we always talk about in the newsroom at RBA, Matt, you know, we always talk about the signal versus the noise. You know, the noise is like the doomsday scenario, you know, that Richmond's going to, you know, go up in flames if they remove these statues. But then when you look at the other places that I just mentioned, the signal was there was none. There was right. No and and the they funny part is scattered. we've we've seen this before. I mentioned the Arthur Ashe statue. You would not believe yeah. You would have thought the world was going to end because they put Arthur Ashe oh, on Monument Avenue. I'd believe it. And I'd you know, believe it. And you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. And so, Nothing. I mean, I think that, I think you just have to, people don't like change. 
You have to get used to yeah. you have to get used to change. But guess what? You know, like you said, the sun's gonna come up the next day, and every right. day as it goes by, more people will feel a little bit more comfortable with change. Thank you, Landon, for being on the show this My week. Pleasure, we're Jason. gonna have you on a bunch of times. Let everybody know really quickly because the new issue is out. There's some great stuff in the new issue that's mm-hmm. out on the streets right now. Let everybody know where they can follow RVA Mag, follow you, and and pick up the magazine. Oh, uh, I mean, the magazine, RBA 33, is great. I mean, some high-profile articles in there. We spent time with the FBI inside the Joint Terrorism Task Force to see how they fight white supremacy. We've got artists like uh, Inga Essenheim, you know, who's debuting down at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach. Our man, Hip Hop Henry, wrote a great article about the intersection of, of rap music and faith. Um, you know, where he went out and talked to the clips frontman, No Malice, our own Radio B. It's just, it's dense with great politics, art, and culture stories. And you can pretty much find it in all your favorite spots in Richmond. That is true. And you can follow basically rvamag.com, right? Everything's online. Mm-hmm. And so that everything's online. Really, really love what you're doing, Landon. Keep up the good work, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you, Chief. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is Cheats with the Cheats Movement on WRIR. We are currently joined by a very special guest, Francis of the Richmond Jazz Festival and JMI. If you don't know, this weekend coming up, I think starting Thursday, it might run Thursday through Sunday, is the annual Richmond Jazz Festival. We are so glad to be joined by Francis. Francis, how you feeling? I'm feeling great, and it is Thursday through Sunday. It's our ninth annual, so we're happy to be back yet again. Wow, nine years. One of my favorite events of the entire kind of festival season is the Richmond Jazz Festival out in Maymont Park. Tell us about this year. What makes this year special? Uh, Tell us what we can expect from the Richmond Jazz Festival. Well, every year we try to curate a lineup that is going to appeal to all kinds of people and this year is no exception and we sort of took a a legends of music approach this year so we have legends of jazz obviously because we're the richmond jazz festival um we've got r&b legends funk legends hip-hop legends um it sort of runs the whole gamut and we're super excited about some of these artists Uh, well i'm excited by a handful of them and even more than a handful when you talk about legends it doesn't get any bigger for me as a hip-hop head then Eric B and Rakim, they'll be on stage, I believe, on Sunday. They're uh, they're back together. I don't know if you know the story, but they were broken up for decades. Uh, decades. Broken yeah. up for decades, and you got them. You've got Roy Ayers coming, I believe he's Saturday. Uh, Frankie Beverly and Mays. I'm so so I'm so excited. Tell me a little bit about every year the lineup for the Richmond Jazz Festival is so diverse and so awesome. How how does that when does it start and how does that like okay we're going to this year we're going to get this artist this artist how does that come together Well we have a team that curates all of these artists and you know when you are running an event like this I guess you're always thinking about it but the real process starts just a few months before the actual jazz festival So that team kind of puts their heads together and decides what kind of direction they want to go in. And as I mentioned this year, was sort of this music legends direction. And we look and see, you know, who's hot and touring right now. We have, you know, a couple curators who just have a real amazing knack for finding 
artists that we hope and feel really good about becoming pretty big in the future. So they put their heads together about it. It's very secret. Nobody knows about this lineup <laughs> until it's announced at the end of May, including right. most of us here. Oh, wow. We don't really know about that until, yeah, until right beforehand. So it's always exciting for every one of us here at JMI and Jazz Festival to to find out who the big players are, and this year was no exception. It was pretty exciting. So let me let me ask because it's the Richmond Jazz Festival. So there's definitely uh, an influence of jazz, but it's such a diverse event. There's like you mentioned, hip hop. There's R and B. There's soul. There's usually some blues in there as well. Um, how is it intentional to make it as diverse as possible? It does does that ever come across to kind of the jazz purist as something that's like, uh, you know, is that celebrated or is that a concern? Well, I wouldn't say that it's a concern. We we always have someone who you know asks why it's called the Jazz Festival when it's not all jazz. <laughs> right. But people don't ask that about the New Orleans Jazz Festival. So right. we like to tell people that we want to offer something for everyone, and we have three stages. So. We have the Virginia is for Lovers stage, which is our main stage in Maymont, and then we have stage two, which is our Dominion Energy stage. And those are typically the more mainstream kind of hip-hop, R&B, um, some jazz and blues acts. So we always have stage three, which we call our straight-ahead straight ahead stage, and that is jazz from top to bottom. So if you are a jazz purist, there is a spot for you in the park. Um, but we find that most people like to wander around and, you know, hear a little bit of everything that's going on because it's quite an experience and, you know, you do have to move around a lot to get all of it. It's pretty amazing. And let's talk about the location because every year I am blown away by the setup of the Jazz Festival being in Maymont Park. I'm surprised. It seems to be one of the only festivals of this nature that's in Maymont. It's such a beautiful setting. It gives so all of the... Uh, patrons just so much space what, no matter what stage you're in or if you're just eating or visiting vendors it's just such a wide open beautiful space how many years has it been in the park and and how is I mean how has that Maymont been for the Jazz Festival as a partner it has been amazing we've been in Maymont every year for the Jazz Festival and things have changed you know we've had two stages and three stages and the number of vendors and the way we have things set up has changed but we do kind of cover the whole park, and it's amazing. We took a crew of um, people out who had, who were going to be working at the Jazz Festival who hadn't been to Maymont, some of them, and then others have been, but obviously not during the Jazz Festival. And it's so hard to get across to people what it's going to be like when everything is out there because it's, it's, it's completely transformed, but it's still beautiful. It's still Maymont. It's fantastic. So we're all over the place. But, you know, a great thing for our patrons is that you can still tell you're in Maymont and you have the opportunity to visit all the areas of Maymont. So you're not really stuck in one place. You're not sitting in your seat at one stage watching the show. You can move around and it just, you can be transported really to whole different scenarios during the, during the couple of days that we're there. It is really amazing. I love it. I love Maymont, you know, with my kids and going to the nature center, but it is a completely different experience for the jazz festival for sure. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Francis from the Richmond Jazz Festival and JMI. So this weekend is the big Richmond Jazz Festival. It does start a little bit earlier than that. So tell everyone, Francis, when does it start? How can they get tickets? How does it run through? I think there's individual tickets for days and group tickets as well. Let us all know where we can get the information. 
Well, your big source is going to be richmondjazzfestival.com, and you can buy tickets there, and there's all the information about all of the events that I'll tell you about um, and all of the artists. Or you can also download the Richmond Jazz app, um, and that has all of the information you need as well. And that's I'm a really big great fan of the app. Maymont. I will tell yeah, you, sidebar. It gives you the updates. It yeah. gives you the updates. It gives you the order. I'm a big fan of the app. Yes. And we do contesting and things like that at the festival, so that's always fun. Um, but, yeah, so King, things kick off on Thursday. Um, we have two events on Thursday, and these are both free to the free and open to the public. One is the Dominion Energy Jazz Cafe at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. And that's, you know, they have that on a regular basis, but for the jazz festival, it's expanded into the atrium. And it's so much fun. It's always amazing music and tons of people and dancing, um, wine, of course, food, and all of that beautiful art that you're surrounded by. And this year, it's the Saxmo um, Sextet, which is sort of a top-notch eclectic jazz group. Um, and that same night, we have um, Hardywood Park Craft Brewery, which is really more like a block party, and folks kind of gather and enjoy amazing beer, and there's the um, food truck court there as well. And this year, um, we've got this funk, rock, R&B, hip-hop, soul, gospel, jazz phenomenon from Richmond called the Evolution of the Groove. So that will be amazing. VMFA kicks off at 6. Um, Hardywood starts at 5.30. The bands usually start around 6.30 or so. And then Friday night at Jackson Ward um, at the historic Hippodrome Theater, we have performances by Friends, which is a sort of modern grooves group, and they do jazz and funk and R&B, and there's a splash of Caribbean flavor in there. And then headlining this year is a world-renowned six-string six bassist, and he's a band leader and a composer and an educator, and his name is Gerald Beasley. He's amazing. And the, the hip, if you've never been there, is just a beautiful phenomenal. theater. That phenomenal. Really I'm amazing. so glad that was yeah. brought back. Yes. So, and then, of course, there's the main event on Saturday and Sunday at Maymont, which, as we talked about, provides this glorious backdrop for all these performances. But there's more than music. There's also tons of food vendors and merchandise vendors, and we've got wine tastings and chef demonstrations, and it's just really a whole lot of fun. So this is starting on Thursday with two events yep. that are free to the public, uh, Friday at the Hippodrome, then Saturday and Sunday at yep. Maymont Park uh, for the for all three stages and food and vendors and all of that. For, That's right. For those of you just joining us, let me, let me do this because it is such an amazing lineup this year. You've got acts like the legendary Gladys Knight, you have the OJs, mm -hmm. you have George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. Again, I mentioned Roy Ayers and Eric B. and Rakim, Josh Stone and Butterscotch as well. Uh, just all day Saturday, all day Sunday, three stages. It's going to be fantastic. So excited that the Richmond Jazz Festival. Do you know, Francis, do you know what year it is? What year is this annually? What is this is our ninth year? Ninth year, so it's yeah, the ninth so year. it's our last single digit year. We're going to be grown up double digit festival next year, <laughs> so we're really excited. It's going to be so much fun. If you're a big George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic fan and you're a Warren G fan, we've oh, that's got right, them Warren playing, G as well. Yeah, we've got yeah, them playing mentioned. back to back, and we're the only festival that gives you G funk and P funk back to back uh, on the uh, same stage. That was pretty, a good one. No, I like that. That yeah. was a good one. Excellent. It's true. It's pretty amazing. So well, we're super excited about that. Well, and then we've okay. got some. Uh, we've got a lot of homegrown Richmond talent 
this year as well. We do every year. Um, Butcher Brown will be here this year, and they, as you know, are from Richmond, but Love they've them. really come into their own um, regionally, and they're really amazing, and we've got Plunky and Oneness, and we've got other local bands peppered throughout the day, and we've got 30 acts and three stages, and there's definitely something for everyone, so you do not want to miss the ninth annual Richmond Jazz Festival. Thank you so much, Francis. And it is. It's going to be a big weekend starting Thursday. We wish you the best of luck here at the Cheats Movement. Thank you so much. And we'll see you out there this weekend. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is the Cheats Movement on WRRR. This is episode three or four, depending on how you're counting. And we have a very special guest. I am in the 7th Congressional District of Virginia. I am in the West End of Henrico. And I'm here with candidate for Congress, Abigail Spanbergler. How's it going? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So first question I always ask for anyone that is running for elected public office, why? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you subject yourself to running for elected public office in 2018 Given all that's going on in the world, you have made a decision that you want to obviously serve the Commonwealth and uh-huh. serve your district. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why do this? Why do this? It's funny. I do have people say, let me just ask you one quick question. Are you crazy? <laughs> um, you know, I think the answer is really simple um, or complicated, I think, depending upon how you look at it. And that is that I think that we need people who are committed to to changing the conversation in Washington, who are committed to listening to people within the community and committed to being a voice for people within the community. Um, And there were a number of of more recent occurrences, in in particular the House health care vote when the House of Representatives voted to repeal ACA, when we had friends, personal friends, who were very, very impacted by that decision. And there are people out there who are working every day to provide for their families and to provide opportunities to themselves and people in their community. Um, And those people need somebody who can advocate for them and who will fight for them and who will work to make legislation that that impacts their lives in a positive way. Um, And frankly, I can't tolerate what I see coming out of Washington most days. And so I want to be a part of changing that. Now, was this something was like public office in general kind of elected uh is this something that was always on your radar or was it really kind of you just kind of saw the direction of the way that our discourse in washington was going and you were like i can help like usually (laughs) usually and i'm around uh you know public officials and people running for office quite a bit usually it's it's a little bit of like hey kind of uh, you know i kind of see myself as a leader i mean maybe this is something for me but was that, was that something that was always ingrained in you growing up? Um, well, so I, I never saw myself running for political office. I had it, I had always grown up in a household where we talked about the value of public service and we talked about the value of serving our country. And so um, my father had was a federal agent and my mother was a, a nurse um, and both were very committed to their, their jobs and their professions um, and the community as a whole. But um, the idea of actually running for public office is, is a relatively new proposition. I had, I had been a federal law enforcement officer myself and then served with the CIA 
Um, and we moved back to the Richmond area three and a half years ago because I really wanted to get involved in a community and put down roots for our kids and, and kind of pivot out of, at the time I thought, pivot out of public service. Fooled <laughs> <laughs> you. Fooled uh, you. Uh, yeah. And so it, it, the decision to run is a lot more motivated by, by recent recent events. And just the fact that, you know, as a CIA officer, I worked under a Republican administration. I worked under a Democratic administration and it was really just about serving the country. It was about protecting people, you know, protecting the country from a terrorist threat and informing policymakers by collecting the best information possible. Um, And so watching people just rush into decisions and watching people prioritize political expediency over really informed decision-making, I think, is is one of the things that motivated me most to run. And we're going to talk about your time at the CIA because I have all kinds of, like, imaginary questions. Sure. And I watch a lot of, like, Homeland and things of that nature. (laughs) I know that that is not exactly what it's like for everyone. I know it's real for some now. Um, But... I do. Uh, let's let's back up to one thing. You and not just you, but a collection of women that chose to get involved in the political process after the 2016 election. Right, were on the cover of Time magazine with articles like, you know, this is the future wave of elected office. Talk about this wave of activism uh, post 2016 and how it seems to be led by women act well um the the cut co- the the time magazine piece was entitled the avengers which it was yes <laughs> which which tr- I think is- trust me i know <laughs> but go ahead continue um you know i think it, i think it's actually pretty interesting because people are talking about this the wave of women who stepped forward in 2017 here in virginia we saw and many of them won their seats we did uh which was incredible and and it's it's at the state level, it's local elections. I have a, a dear friend who was elected to the Blackburg Blacksburg Town Council, uh, who she was just elected this past year. So there there's a tremendous wave of women running all over the country. And and I think what's really interesting, what I have seen personally, is there are so many women who've been involved in their communities in really meaningful, impactful ways, be it at you know, with local schools or um, advocating for something related to building infrastructure or advocating for nonprofit organizations, re- really driven and involved in really organized planning that benefits particular causes, but they haven't always, they haven't been political causes necessarily. And so I think what's been interesting for me is that I have witnessed, even in my personal life, the, the women I have seen who have been driven to run they've been very engaged in their communities where they've been very engaged in something um, that requires a longer-term vision, that requires a commitment to working on behalf of you know, a, an ideal or other people, but recognizing that what's happening at Washington, in Washington or you know, at, at the GA impacts whatever it is that they care about, be it research for a particular disease or something related to schools, that it all does boil down to what's happening in our legislative bodies really does impact whatever it is that they care about. So I, I think it's been an interesting shift watching women who've been advocating for years in various different ways set their sights on being a part of actually the political dis- decision-making um, as a way to potentially even more meaningfully impact the things that are happening in their communities. I think you're right, and I think it's a good thing. I, I, I always learned growing up that it seems as if 
the more voices we have coming to a table is better, right? I mean, it's just, you know, you're going to get better ideas with a diverse uh, makeup. And what we've seen, I think, too long is that it just hasn't been that way. You just haven't seen enough diversity in our legislative bodies on the local level all the way over the top. And there's still a lot of work to do. But it seems to be, this seems to be a good moment for that type of now why do you think that moment is do you really i mean is it something that you saw before the election of the current president or no (laughs) so i mean there there have been challenges and problems in in our i mean that we've needed to address for a long time but i think that no, when we're generally in a good place economically and Barack Obama was our president, there, there were a lot of reasons to think we were in a pretty good place. And I think that the the shock of seeing someone like President Trump become president um, and recognizing that basically he had said something offensive and disrespectful towards pretty much every demographic population possible, um, I, I think that did really motivate people. I mean, and especially... I mean, for me, you know, the idea that I have three kids and the the ways that I teach them to treat other people, the ways that I encourage them to engage and respect and show empathy um, are just not in any way (laughs) values that we see even just coming from the way the president interacts with other people. I I think that was a a shock to a lot of people's systems, right? And when you were talking about having more voices around the table... I do think that when there are people with various different personal experiences, you know, be it from how they grew up or be it from their professional experience or be it because of who they are and how they perceive the world and how the world perceives them, I think that anytime you have any level of, of difference of perspective at a table, it's valuable because it also invites, it invites more, um, more discussion. And so, you know, you might have a group of five people around the table, if they're all different, you end up getting not just the perspectives of those five people, but when you recognize that there can be those significant differences, I think then you're even open to seeing further differences beyond that um, and and bringing in those voices and, and having those be part of the conversation. Let's, let's talk about the seventh. So you're running for uh, Congress in the seventh district. Traditionally, it's safe to say, right? Traditionally, through the Brad Kanner years, it's been a repu- like a Republican since, stronghold since the right? early seventies. Yes. Okay. Yes, longer than we've been alive. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, when you look at the makeup, talk to me about the makeup of the seventh. When you look at the seventh, uh, what kind of gives you motivation? Uh, and, and for people that don't know geographically, also tell us where the seventh is. Se- the seventh is a weird district, right? It, it really is. It's a weird district that stretches a lot parts. Uh, tell, tell me demographically where the seventh is, and then what gives you optimism uh, in regards to running in, in such a Republican stronghold? So the the a little geography lesson on the seventh, which I, I usually give at most of our meet and greets because it is such a funny shaped district. Fast. And we were we, we were recently redistricted in 2016. So it, if people are listening and don't know if they're in the seventh, don't feel bad. Many people don't. There was uh, change district change in the district lines. We are all of Culpeper County, all of Orange County, all of Louisa County, all of Goochland County. We are Western Spotsylvania, the majority of Spotsylvania, but on the western side. We are uh, a large percentage of Henrico County, predominantly on the western side. 
Uh, we are large portion of Chesterfield County, again, on the western side. And then we are Powhatan County, Amelia County, and Nottoway County. We used to have a portion of Richmond City. We no longer do. And our lines, kind of as they stretch around Richmond City, uh, where the border is within Henrico and Chesterfield, uh, near the city lines, is, is very, very jagged. On our website, we actually have... One of the best things I've, I've already given you credit for this <laughs> off before the interview, but learn like go to the website if you want to see exactly the kind of the makeup of the seven dish and it's fascinating yeah we we you can type in your address and it'll pop up and you can see if you're in the district and it'll for people who are kind of along the city border you can actually see where the line is because there's some places where one side of the streets in the seventh and one side of the streets in the fourth so but uh but that's the district and we are historically a republican voting district we, with a, a couple sort of an anomalies there, we have, um, you know, it's interesting because in Virginia, we don't, we don't register with parties. So we just have to rely on historical voting information in terms of whether or not you vote in a Democratic primary or Republican primary. And there's also some modeling that, that is often done. So we're about a third of the population is ideologically independent, a third ideologically conservative and a third ideologically liberal. Um, and so that third, pop, the third that's ideologically independent, they've historically voted more on the Republican side. Um, but I think what's really interesting is where we are now. There's a couple things that I, th- I think make this race really exciting this year. And that is that that middle of the road, historically Republican, but more independent voter. Um, th- those people increasingly, um, many of them have expressed a disagreement with what's happening in Washington be it the rhetoric out of the White House, be it the fact that our incumbent is frequently aligned or generally always aligned with, with the White House, and then even just the overall lack of civility that's, that is coming out of Washington and the fact that we're really not getting anything done. People are prioritizing their political ideology over um, the desire to, to basically have Congress do and achieve its, its basic functions. So I think that's a little bit of a motivating factor to some of the independent to consider voting in a way they may have historically not recently. We also have a lot of people who fall into the category of voting every four years at the presidential, um, who are now inclined to pay attention. You know, in Virginia, we have elections every single year. Um, And so we have... (laughs) Boy, boy, don't we. (laughs) So it's it's exciting. You know, we have a lot of people who, who got so inspired with the 2017 elections, and particularly in the Henrico Chesterfield area, we had tremendous candidates uh, who who ran in the portions that fall within the seventh and and three of them were successful in flipping their seats in the the house of delegates and so you know there's so much energy and people have seen the success that we can have when we really advocate for the issues that are important to us um, and and so I think it is a really changing district it, it, it certainly isn't an easy easy path um, but we're just going <laughs> Was there any time when you were like, all right, let me look at the seventh, and you're like, what? What what is happening? I'm running where? Where? Yeah. Well, and it's so funny, too, because, I mean, the district, I I think it's such a cool place. And even I was was in Culpeper on on Saturday evening, and the drive to Culpeper, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. You know, and the idea that you get to, like, drive across all this beautiful country, and it's all part of the district, which, and it looks and feels totally different than parts of Western sure. Henrico. And then, you know, and Chesterfield's different from Henrico. And then you go to Nottoway County and it's totally a different a different place as well. So it's actually really exciting because there's all these issues that are really, across the board, I think people generally people have a lot of the same concerns. 
but understanding how they impact the different communities differently, I think, is is a is an interesting is an interesting challenge for for someone running in this district, and I find it really exciting. Let's finish up on some some lighter, funner notes, right? So, uh, and trust me, I'm, <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying there are no wrong answers, right? So I understand a lot of people get nervous around this time when you ask them about just like regular stuff. You have three kids, so I know you're in the car a lot. What's in the playlist? What what is play? What music is playing on the playlist when you're going to events? What's 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 the family songs? Moana. Moana's Still? great. Okay. No, there's nothing embarrassing well, about that. That was a good one. The embarrassing yeah. one is High School Musical. Okay, that one that, that is great, but yeah. no, there's no wrong answers. Moana though is phenomenal. Moana, Moana's yeah, yeah. amazing. So Moana is the one I'm a little bit proud of. Uh, High School Musical, and then Hamilton. <laughs> So okay. We're a big soundtrack family. There you uh, go. I see this. Now, have you yes. seen Hamilton? I have not. Okay. I have not. I have not either. I can't afford that ticket. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's crazy. In um, like 10 years when it's like on run, I don't know. Because well, it's, it's Broadway, <laughs> Broadway and Richmond, <laughs> Hamilton. We're going to go see that. Exactly. So now you said well, that was when your kids are in the car. When the kids aren't in the car, what's in the playlist? It's NPR or it's 104. What? What? Yeah. It's, it's one of the two. That's fine. Yeah. That works out. So then whatever comes across. I like I mean, it. Yeah. I like it. Switch. Music, uh, movies, movies. What are what's a movie? It's been. So when was long. the last time? When was the last <laughs> time you went to the movie theater to see a movie? The the last movie I saw in a movie theater. I, I wow. Think, I think was Frozen. Okay, that's yeah. not that long ago. It was. Here's the thing, though. Frozen's a horrible movie. It next, was terrible. Next to Moana, Moana is great. Moana. Frozen's miserable. Yeah, because I don't even think I saw Moana in the movie theater. I think I saw Frozen. Frozen was terrible. Uh, one of our children left crying. It was really awful. It's a horrible film. It's I watched terrible. it thinking, like, I've got a three-year-old. Like, yeah. oh, let's see what this... Pi-. It was a horrible film. We just watched Moana and Zootopia on repeat. Basically, yeah, Moana's amazing. Weekend Away. What like, Exactly. You know, This is not going to happen anytime soon for you, but Weekend Away, what is the family activity? Um... A lot of outdoor time, a lot of wandering time. If we've got the kids, if it's just Adam and me, then we like to go to a city and just explore. Favorite um, city that you've explored? You know, actually, it was it was fun. I will say this: a, a shout out to Richmond. When we moved back to sure. back to the Richmond area in 2014, one of the, for our anniversary, actually, we spent the weekend in Richmond and just saw every tourist site that as someone who grows up here you never actually visit okay and we did the we did uh the trolley tours yeah. we did a Segway tour it was amazing so um there's it's kind of fun to be a, a tourist in your own little town that's cool we're gonna have to wrap it up there abigail tell us where you know we can find you on social media where you can find your website okay so all things related to the campaign our website is abigail spanberger that's sp like peter spanberger a N like Nancy B E R G E R, but don't worry if you spell it wrong, you'll probably be redirected because there's not not a lot of things similar to that. So AbigailSpanberger.com. We're also on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. We did have a great office opening just this past weekend, um, so it's exciting the the progress of the campaign and the momentum of the campaign. And I invite you all to check us out and like us on Facebook and and be in touch with the campaign. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's episode of the Cheats Movement on WRIR. As always, you can follow the Cheats Movement. You can follow me, Cheats, on Instagram at Cheats underscore MWC. You can email the show at thecheatsmovement at gmail.com. And you can follow everything on thecheatsmovement.com. I hope to see you again 
Until next time, we see it.